0: Hey everyone, you can listen to all seasons of As She Rises, including the new season three ad-free on Wondery Plus.
1: The worst crime I know men have committed is to turn nature into an oppressor. I tend land, concrete gorges in earth, pillared steel and brick, burdenless and guiltless below its sky the first witness and last native to this island at the joint of the ocean's palm and the Hudson's stretch into us. An exodus from the diaspora for sins of skin darkening for lack of sun and barren pockets. Somewhere, we search for home. So we bleed joy into summers enclosed in our beating heart labyrinthine barrios, The croon of a singer who never kissed his mother's land goodbye Laces and tangles treetops in the night Glides into the southern current of the sea Waters the pores of my concrete Cascading lyrics from our windows return in lush platano leaves on the sill When our words melt into English arroyos Pavement, that mutilation of Manhattan Island breaks open nature's bounty. Grotesque, undulating heat reverberates from asphalt, ricochets off brick into the heartbeat of car stereos. Diesel clouds halo above us. Toxins pumped from Earth's troves poison our breath. Of their sear on our skin, their imprint on our lungs, their toil in digging deep graves for early deaths. Here lies the fate of the first natives, to be mutilated as someone's ancestors mutilated Manhattan, raising forest, burying water with families, forcing brown bodies thereafter to swallow oceans in order to taste home.
0: New York City. The Big Apple. The city that never sleeps. Call it what you will, New York is a place people hold in their mind and have strong opinions about, regardless of if they've ever been here. It's the source of countless films, plays, songs, childhood dreams, and journeys of self discovery. But as many of us who live here know, the New York that's portrayed on screen and in our imaginations is very different from the city we encounter every day. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is As She Rises. Today, we're ending our season in my chosen home, New York. I moved here just over six years ago. I know I can't call myself a New Yorker yet, But I've never loved being in a place more, and yet there are elements of it I still struggle to get used to. Having grown up in the temperate rain shadow of western Washington, and later enjoyed the dry heat of Northern California, nothing prepared me for New York summers. I tend to run cold. Okay, that's putting it mildly. For 20 some odd years, I remember being pretty much always cold. Which is why it is such a fundamentally bizarre experience to walk outside and feel like someone wrapped my organs in Polartec. That the warmth radiating off of the building actually goes right through my skin and heats up my bones. The heat here is borderline surreal. I'm still adapting to it. And for those from the city, they're feeling the heat intensify. At the top of the show, you heard from Jade Lozada. Her poem, The Worst Crime, was commissioned by the NRDC.
1: My name is Jade Lozada. I am 19 years old from New York City. I am a student, a freshman in college, and also a climate organizer and poet. When I think about my childhood, the greatest and clearest memory is the music that we listen to. My dad will always play salsa music and Latin jazz and all of this uh, traditional, like merengue, and I just love it so much. And that is the music that I had in mind when I was thinking of this spiritual place in the poem.
0: New York City is home to nearly 9 million people, making it the largest city in the U.S. by a mile. It's also one of the most diverse cities in the world, with roughly 700 languages spoken daily throughout the five boroughs. The Latinx community makes up a huge contingency of the city's ethnic mosaic. And Jade's family has ties to both Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. Her connection to Puerto Rico was influential in writing The Worst Crime.
1: The greatest difference between The islands that we come from and the island that we're on now is probably the the weather, the heat, and how we experience the air and nature in it. And these new generations of Latinx New Yorkers consider this home, but still have this connection to their original island home, even if they've never been there, but it just exists in the culture and in the family When heat, which brings us most closely to what that original home, that original island is like, is actually something that suffocates, kills disproportionately, and exacerbates the illnesses that these communities have at higher levels than wealthier, whiter communities in the city. It creates this tragic irony that You can't
0: have a home anywhere, but you have a home everywhere. This important link to home, the heat, is something Jade's finding herself having a hard time translating to her new friends in college. Even though she's still on the East Coast, it seems that this particular New York heat is something her peers don't readily understand.
1: New York heat is probably most unique in that it reverberates off the buildings And it makes the heat so much more intense, which combines with the high level of humidity because it's an island and can make those summers sweltering. So when you're in New York in the middle of a hot summer day, you can feel the heat coming off the concrete. Usually you could even see the little waves, sometimes even if it's that hot. And if you're downtown, near skyscrapers or even just large buildings in general it can bounce off the glass and down onto the street in a way that is just suffocating and unfortunately lots of people suffer the consequences of extreme heat every summer many die but even if people don't die from extreme heat there are plenty of consequences before that, that can land you in the hospital or require that you rush to a cooling center.
0: When we hear about climate change affecting New York, it's usually in the context of sea level rise or intensifying storms. And those threats are real, don't get me wrong. But there's another burgeoning issue, and that's this intense heat. On average, the heat kills over 300 New Yorkers each year. That far exceeds the winter cold, which contributes to an average of 15 deaths a year. I asked Jade when she started connecting the dots between those hot summer days of her childhood and climate change. She was able to pinpoint the moment exactly. There was
1: definitely a singular moment that I realized climate change was a true problem. And that was when I auditioned to perform spoken word poetry on the climate crisis with a competition called Climate Speaks and that's presented by the Climate Museum here in New York. I originally applied because I was a writer and I was excited by the opportunity and of course I knew what climate change was. I understood that it was extremely urgent and I understood the small steps I could take to combat it but really had no idea of the extent of its relation to social justice issues. So in creating this poem, I did research about how climate change specifically affects New York. And when I learned about extreme heat, urban heat island effect specifically, as well as other related climate issues, like sea level rise, I understood that climate change perpetuates social justice issues and is created by the same capitalist exploitation that also created the social justice issues.
0: The term urban heat islands technically refers to an effect of urban cityscapes having fewer trees and more asphalt and glass. So subsequently, the air and the surface temperatures in these areas are hotter than nearby leafy rural neighborhoods. However, that definition paints cities with a very broad brush. In New York, the heat is felt differently, neighborhood to neighborhood. And that distinction isn't just about generic comfort. Heat exacerbates already at-risk communities. Communities that suffer from lower cardiovascular health, higher rates of asthma and diabetes, for example. And those communities are often communities of color. One of the New York neighborhoods that typically tops the charts in these sorts of health statistics is the South Bronx. Dr. Melissa Barber is a co founder of the community organizing group South Bronx Unite. She's a physician by training, an author, and a whole host of other things. And she is extremely proud to be a lifelong resident of the South Bronx. When we spoke, she was in a highly matching bright green and red ensemble. Her vibrancy was infectious. When I asked her to describe her neighborhood to me, she jumped at the chance.
2: Oh, man, this is like such an amazing question because it juxtaposes all of the other imagery that I hear of the South Bronx. But growing up, I remember love and community. We were heavily African, Latino American. And so, of course, even the food. So the smells of like chicken, collard greens, mac and cheese, rice and beans, mango, like all that good stuff radiating from any home in the community and all all of us kind of getting that little melting pot of what it is to smell home, right, In, in a Latin or African American community. And we take care of our own and we're so used to fighting with, you know, fighting for solutions within and making sure that the solutions come from ourselves because they never come from the outside, that it has taught us to always be grounded in a level of community that most people won't understand if they're they're not from the inside of the community. And when people move in, they're like, oh my God, I never knew it was like this. Or, oh my God, I never knew the people were so nice. Or, oh my God, I never knew, like, there was such community here. It's definitely something that most outsiders wouldn't know, but any and everybody who is from here knows very well. For those unfamiliar with the
0: geography of New York City's boroughs, The Bronx is situated just north of Manhattan. The southern end of the borough dips way down, only separated from Manhattan and Queens by the Harlem and East Rivers. The Mott Haven area is predominantly Black and Hispanic, with over twice the poverty rate of the city as a whole. The overall physical health of its residents is also struggling, and a lack of investment in the area puts these people at a heightened risk. Here's what I mean by that. In a 2018 study, the New York City Department of Health looked at avertable deaths in the area. Those are deaths that could have been avoided if the neighborhood had the same death rate as the five wealthiest neighborhoods. By that metric, 45% of deaths could have been averted in the South Bronx neighborhoods of Mott Haven and Melrose. As Dr. Barber points out, these are tough circumstances.
2: But that doesn't mean her community isn't strong. The imagery of the South Bronx is usually, you know, one that has always been burning. If you read any kind of report or statistic, right, we're sicker, we breathe the worst kind of air. And those are true, right? Or that there's so much gang violence, you know, that, that there's so much poverty. You know, just all those negative perspectives. And it's not that it's not necessarily true. I don't want to minimize poverty because it's it's a real thing and it's very serious. But within the confines of socioeconomic limitation, there was definitely a heart of people that were fighting to survive and making a way for better, you know, for themselves, for their families.
0: Dr. Barber is part of that beating heart fighting for her community. In 2012, the city announced plans to open a fresh direct warehouse in the South Bronx. Dr. Barber and a few of her other South Bronx natives joined together to organize against the proposal, which would bring increased industrialization, noise, and pollution to a neighborhood already struggling with air quality.
2: Anything about the history that you know of the South Bronx, we are called the Asthma Alley. We have... asthma rates you know within our population that are 7 and 8 times higher than the national average We breathe very different air. We live right here amongst five highways that, you know, back in the day when the urban planning was taking place, Robert Moses decided that he would up, you know, put an upheaval within our communities and build five highways through them, right? And so with that, you have all this, you know, truck traffic, you have all this diesel fuel being pumped into the environment. Then you have industry taking place here. And we're literally trying to fight, you know, for this parcel of land. Just give us a little piece of land because we want the waterfront. Like, why is it that we are the only borough in New York City that doesn't have a waterfront and we're on a peninsula? Like, why don't we have access to the water? And so, you know, all these things that we're fighting for. And here comes Fresh Direct getting millions, right? $140 million to bring a thousand more trucks into our community.
0: Fresh Direct opened on that waterfront parcel of land and is still there today. After the warehouse opened, traffic increased by 10 and 40 percent in two different parts of the neighborhood. Noise increased by upwards of 30 percent. But Dr. Barber and her unrelenting optimism pointed me to the broader picture. She phrased it to me as, though the community may have lost that battle, they're now poised to win the war. The protest over Fresh Direct solidified South Bronx Unite as a political and organizing force. They've created a pathway for their community to mobilize the next time the city tries to push them around. And that will most certainly come to pass. More on South Bronx Unite's most recent fight after a quick break from our sponsors. The fact is, the earth is getting hotter As I was researching urban heat islands, I found one of the latest episodes of To a Lesser Degree from The Economist to be particularly instructive. Their episode, Living in a Hotter World, takes a close look at communities that are successfully adapting in the face of rising temperatures. One example they highlight is how the French government implemented sweeping changes to minimize heat-related deaths after the country experienced a shocking heat wave. Especially as COP26 dominates the news, if you're interested in a more global perspective that still manages to share very focused stories that I encourage you to listen to, to a lesser degree. The show takes a clear-eyed look at the people, politics, and technologies that will be needed in the fight against extreme climate change. That's To a Lesser Degree, a weekly podcast on climate change from The Economist. Subscribe and listen for free wherever you're listening right now. When I set out to create this series, I knew I was going to have to be very intentional about my daily schedule and sanity. So one of the activities I made sure stayed on my schedule, no matter what, was therapy. I'm a big proponent of it, as I've mentioned it before, and I believe everyone deserves affordable counseling. That's why I'm excited to talk about our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp tries to make it as easy and affordable as possible for anyone to have access to professional, licensed therapists. You don't have to sit in a waiting room anymore. You don't even have to be in the same city. You can see a counselor from the convenience of wherever you're located in the world right now. And BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional therapists, too. You'll even get an extra 10% off your first month when you visit BetterHelp.com slash RISES. On the site, you'll answer some questions that'll help them match you with the right therapist. But once matched, if you prefer to try someone else, it's free and easy to switch. So I encourage you, if you're considering therapy, it's worth checking out. Go to rises and get 10% off your first month. Neighborhoods like the South Bronx suffer from air pollution, asthma raids, heat waves, and deafening noise due to a long history of racist policies. As we touched on in our first episode, redlining was a racist housing practice of the 1930s in which homeowners loan corporations deemed houses in communities of color dangerous for mortgage lending. Even though the practice was outlawed in the late 60s, the neighborhoods that were labeled undesirable then continued to suffer from a lack of investment.
2: It's the unfortunate story of, once again, the top-down decisions of who are in the 1% and those thinking that a community, a specific people, are not worthy. When Robert Moses was doing the planning of the city, Right. And this is not just for New York City, but this was all urban communities throughout, you know, the United States, right? Wherever there were black and brown communities, the decision when it came to urban planning was that we will not invest in those communities the same way we would invest in white communities. So those communities would not get the trees and the parks, those communities would not have access to the water, those communities would not have all of the amenities that actually buffer what creates the heat island. And because of that, that actually plays out in the heat islands that we see today, right? If you have a community that's full of concrete and there's no green trees to buffer the pollution, if you have industry that, you know, if you have five major highways like we do, and there's truck traffic and diesel truck fuel, you know, polluting this air every day, you have all of these factors that are rising the heat of the community. So on a 96 degree day, which is already like a heat day, right, which we consider like a heat wave day, you have a personal body in that specific community because of the waste transfer stations, because of the major highways, because of the concrete, because of the lack of shade, that body is now feeling that heat about 10 to 15 degrees higher. Actually,
0: it's even hotter In early August of this year, the New York Times compared surface temperatures between Manhattan's Upper West Side, East Harlem, and the South Bronx. On a tree-lined street near Central Park, the sidewalk temperature was 84 degrees. And on that same day, in the Mott Haven area of the South Bronx, the surface temperature registered as 119 degrees, a full 35 degrees hotter. It's not a coincidence that the South Bronx also happens to be one of the least forested areas in the city. There's only 7% tree cover in the Mott Haven-Port Morris area. More affluent areas of the Bronx, neighborhoods like Riverside, enjoy 47% tree cover. So some neighborhoods have shade from trees and some don't. That might seem kind of frivolous. But trees have a very important role to play beyond aesthetics. In addition to providing shady salvation from the beating sun, trees also absorb moisture through their roots and then re-release it into the air, actively cooling the environment around them. The impact of that natural cooling system should not be taken lightly. Right now, the heat is inflaming existing inequalities. According to the New York City Health Department, black New Yorkers are twice as likely to die from heat exposure than their white neighbors. And New York is only getting hotter. The city has long been considered to have a humid continental climate. But recently, after years of increasingly high summer temperatures and above average lows, we've officially been reclassified as a humid subtropical climate zone. In the face of rising temperatures, something has got to change. South Bronx Unite has teamed up with Columbia University and the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration for a citizen science study to map out hyper-localized heat islands. The hope is that this data will lead to targeted interventions for the communities that need it the most.
2: When this project came along, we were like, literally, this is kind of the continuation of what we've done or what we're trying to do in terms of having community participatory research where we involve the community in aspects of learning about climate change, climate justice, but also having them work with us to actually do the maps. And so we we plotted out the areas, we planned the areas. And then our organization as a community-based organization, we began to like broad class it, like who wants to be a part of citizen science? Who wants to be a part of this community project where we literally begin to explore what heat feels like and, you know, map heat throughout these areas of the Bronx. And we got people who are willing to drive their cars with the actual sensors, the heat sensors, take infrared pictures. The great thing is that we also had a lot of media come out. I had one young lady who was from a media outlet. She was like, oh my God, I have, I never knew this. (laughs) You know, I never knew that people lived like this. I never knew that it was this loud, that there were no trees, that there were no, and I was like, yeah, now imagine that being somebody's reality every day, right? And there's no place to go, right, for refuge in that.
0: Just as Jade said earlier, Social justice and climate change are inextricably linked. The communities that cities and governments have traditionally neglected or cast aside are the same communities that will bear the brunt of climate change. A change intensified by the same corporate greed that denied their communities resources in the first place. We have the option not to repeat the mistakes of our past to invest in these communities, to incorporate them in solutions. And while it's really easy to be cynical about any of those fundamental shifts occurring, I know that people like Dr. Barber and her team at South Bronx Unite haven't given up. They're hoping to use this heat map data to pressure city officials to invest in community-generated
2: solutions. These are the solutions that we're coming to as a community and everybody is involved and everybody has a voice in it. And now what are we going to do about it? Right? Like I love these conversations because now it becomes these real questions of equity. It becomes these real conversations about how do we do urban planning Where we don't forget about the masses of people that have endured the suffering and say, well, now they have to get out because we have the millionaires coming in or the white flight coming in. You know, how do we design our communities where there's a collective creation of what should be in those communities and how everybody gets to live together in them and experience a new type of living that doesn't involve the black and brown people being pushed out of where they've literally had their homes for centuries, right? how does it involve us actually taking a piece of land and saying we're not going to exploit this land you know for a private company or a private developer to get and develop and make it into million dollar condos but how about we put a community garden here and how about we put a space here for food sustainability and how how about we do this and how about we build up a waterfront and how about we do all of these other things that are now going to buffer the centuries of things that we've done to desecrate this place, right? How do we actually have those voices in place that will one, fight for a community to look like that, and then two, right, come up with the solutions. I remain optimistic because I know a change is coming, right? I know that the heart of this community is to fight. Right. And so when we sit down at the tables and we begin to discuss all of the projects upon projects upon projects, we look at this next generation of our children. Right. And we're like, we're leaving a legacy for them. Right. And we've always known, you know, specifically for our black and brown communities, we've always known that there's never going to be a solution that comes from outside for us, that it's always us. Right? And we're always creating the solutions and we're always creative. And so when we get to tap into all of who we are at the core and all of our values and all of our beliefs and all of our love, like it is, it's just amazing. We were nurtured in these streets. And so if we were nurtured in these streets, the same level of love and care that was given to us, we now pass that on. And we now create legacy behind it. And so, you know, I say it with a smile because I still think no matter what, I live in the best place on the planet. So even as hard as it is, I can smile always because I know that this is this is what I've been called to do. This is my purpose. And I'm living out that passion within the earth. Like that's that's what it's all about, living out your purpose.
0: When I tried to wrap up my already well-over-time interview with Dr. Barber, she scoffed at the idea that I hadn't given her a chance to read some of her poetry. Of course, she's a poet. I should have known. So, here is the final stanza of her poem.
2: I am a dreaming woman. Seeing the waters of a South Bronx waterfront, purging the shames of decades of industrialized air pollution that sickens my people, possessing empty land to build a -A H-E-A-R-T, hearts of holistic wellness in the center of my community, taking the stand of my comrades, the Black Panthers and Young Lords, by any means necessary. I am a conquering woman. A special needs mother who's amazing just by that very fact. Six times I've seen death knock for my child's life, only finding TKOs waiting on the other side of the door. Nothing and no one is taking my stuff. I am a woman. Dr. Melissa Barber's the name.
0: South Bronx Unite is doing a lot of amazing work. From land trusts to legislative and policy organizing to citizen science, there's a myriad of initiatives. And up until recently, they were entirely volunteer-based. Dr. Barber beamed when she told me about how they finally raised enough money this year to hire someone. So if you would like to support their work and all that they do, I encourage you to go to southbronxunite.org. When I set out to make this show, I hoped to find a way to personalize the elusive magnitude of climate change. And I've gotten a lot of questions along the way about why we approached the show the way we did, why feature women, why start with poetry. While I could blather on as to why, I think Jade sums it up much better than I could. I've always thought that
1: the power of poetry and any social justice movement particularly the climate justice movement is that anyone can interpret anything from a poem it could be any line that stands out that changes your mind or that stays with you so that you do more research or share what you learned or act on it with other people I think that it inspires hope in a way that statistics cannot and it meets people where they are and speaks to people's lived experiences as policy cannot, or even you know, stimulus packages and like recovery bills cannot. I think that when it comes to women specifically in the climate movement, we have such a strong and vibrant women's movement here in the United States. But I, I think that a, an aspect we miss in an in intersection with the climate crisis specifically is how, Most climate refugees are women. I think the women's movement here could do a better job of articulating what's happening in other places and explore the intersections of the climate crisis with social justice and general inequity issues around the world.
0: I find myself time and time again coming back to something Colette said in our first episode, The Bayou. There's an acknowledgement that has to come in order for us to survive. And it is that the strongest, most knowledgeable people are the ones that our capitalist society values the least. But if we're going to survive this climate crisis, we're going to have to value them the most. Speaking with the remarkable people on this show has been an incredibly humbling and gratifying experience. These are not the voices we always hear from when we think about the climate crisis. And while they call wildly different places home, I found such beautiful and intricate connections through their work to preserve and protect their corners of the world. From the tundras of Alaska to the plains of Oklahoma, Sikhanik and Casey are organizing against the oil and gas industry that threatens the health of their community. While Amira is replanting trees in Puerto Rico, Frankie is removing invasive ones in Hawaii. Jerica is determined to stay in New Orleans for as long as it'll let her. Raquel moved back to Puerto Rico in the wake of a disaster. Margo is trying to get humans back into the landscape of Northern California. Becky and Kim are working to keep human intervention out of the boundary waters. Each one of these incredible people brought so much hope to each conversation. In the face of monumental obstacles, they are finding pathways to make a difference, to act. There's great cosmic poetry in this, that the answers lie with those no one is listening to. And while I may not be able to solve global warming by myself... I can listen to those who know so much more than I do. I can follow the actions and advice of those communities too often neglected. I can look to women, women of color, non-binary folks, and indigenous communities around the world who are the first responders to this crisis. These are the communities advocating for our planet and the people on it. It's time for all of us to start listening. As She Rises is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. The show is produced by myself, Lindsay Crowderwill, and Liz Smith. Our managing producer is Emily Rudder. Editorial support from Ale Tejeda and Carmen Bococorillo. Thank you all so much for listening. Before you go, I want to let you know about another podcast I think you might like. It's called Solvable. Solvable showcases the most innovative thinkers and their proposed solutions to the world's most daunting problems. Host Ronald Young Jr. invites activists, scientists, policymakers, and politicians have conversations that both acknowledge the complexity of these issues while inspiring hope that the problems are, in fact, solvable. You'll hear David Baltimore on AIDS, Sal Khan on basic education, and Roseanne Haggerty on homelessness. Other episodes have focused on racial justice, police accountability, and election security. Listen to Solvable in your favorite podcast app. All season, we've been counting down the days to COP26. I also just learned about the Climate Crisis Global Film Festival, and I'm excited to see how filmmakers are making their voices heard at COP26. The Climate Crisis Global Film Festival brings together a powerful program of over 50 films representing 30 different countries alongside discussions with activists, change makers, and thought leaders to talk about climate solutions. The festival emphasizes narratives and filmmakers from the global south and includes a presentation of four powerful film titles shortlisted for the first ever climate film competition open exclusively to BIPOC and non-Western filmmakers. The four finalists portray frontline climate experiences from underrepresented places and communities, the Philippines, Hawaii, Mexico, and Nicaragua. You can watch screenings, conversations, and everything the festival has to offer for free at www.climatecrisisff.co.uk. Hey, everyone. You can listen to every episode of As She Rises, including those from the newest season, ad-free with Wondery Plus. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.